what's up everybody and welcome back to another episode of rapping with reef bum i'm your host keith Burkelhammer, and today i have the pleasure of welcoming scott fellman hey scott hey there Good. how are you scott is the chief tin officer of tannin aquatics and many of you may remember scott as a reef keeping guru slash authority <laughs> and one of the co-owners <laughs> actually of unique corals well, a few years ago, he left to start his own freshwater aquarium business called Tannin Aquatics. And I'm going to let you, Scott, explain what Tannin is all about. But um, sure. we're going to talk about Tannin, but we're also going to talk a lot about reef tank stuff and some of the uh, philosophies and approaches of freshwater and this botanical style aquarium that uh, Scott is doing with, with Tannin. There, there are some uh, crossovers with the reef aquarium hobby, so we're going to talk about all that stuff. Anyway, Scott has written a number of articles for the reef keeping hobby, blogged about it, has his own forum, had his own forum on Reef to Reef. I think you, uh, you yeah. don't have that anymore, do you? Yeah, yeah, yeah not, not, don't do that anymore. Contributed articles for reef builders, has spoken at reef clubs and conferences all over the world, including Magnas, Reef Stocks, and Reef of Paloozas. This guy, Scott here, has done it all and is, is an expert and has a wealth of information on a number of topics. So I encourage you folks that are tuning in to uh, ask questions in the chat. But yeah, Scott, welcome to the show, guy. Thank you so much for being a part Thanks. of this. No, this is great. I, I was I was telling you when we first touched base on this, this is the first reef-based show that I've done in probably a couple of years. I did a reef talk for a club last year, but... It's nice to be, you know, talking to the reef community as well. That's what's so fun is the crossover stuff is so cool. Yeah. No, I'm looking forward to getting into that uh, conversation. Folks, yeah. thanks for, uh, for tuning in. I see John Reef of Vermont. Welcome back there, John. Um, TFP is tuning in. Blue Reef, Algae Warriors back. Uh, Macy's Daddy, thanks for, uh, for tuning in again. Producer Reef, the Herm 14, some recognizable folks out there. But before we start chatting with Scott, I just want to thank the show's sponsor, Marine Depot. I really, really appreciate their support for being a supporter of the show. Please think of them when you're shopping for your reef keeping um, dry goods. And I also appreciate the support from you, you folks, the viewers out there. So please spread the word about the show. Obviously, the more um, thumbs up we get, the more people will, um, will find it and watch it. So, all right, now let's get on to the show here. Scott. Let's do it. And, All right. And what, what I always like to do in terms of the uh, the start of the show with, with new guests that I have on is to kind of ask them how they got into the to the aquarium hobby. Sure. So I know you've got a great story. What uh, what how, yeah. how did you get to this, this point here, Scott? I Well, I, I literally had my first fish tank probably before I could read. I, I think I, I my dad bred fancy guppies when I was a little kid. He gave me his culls. I didn't know they were his culled fish, but he gave me the ones that weren't good enough for his breeding program. I, I had my first fish tank actual aquarium when I was about four and a half, five years old. It was a five gallon metal frame aquarium. Uh, always had bowls in my room, you know, different kind of fish. Uh, you know, and I, it was it was ordained that I become a fish geek from an early age. And so from there, um, just kept all kinds of community fish, had my first saltwater tank when I was about, I think I was around 10 years old. It was a wow. 10 gallon tank. I had a sea bay anemone and a, and a sea bay clown and a blue Fiji damsel. And somehow they made it with my undergravel, you know, undergravel filter and <laughs> power heads. And uh, then I got my first reef tank, like right around the time when they first came out in the George Smith era, 1985, 86. Wow. When, uh, that, that article on, you know, the wet dry filter was like all the rage. And I actually got one uh, and um, 
had my primitive reef tank and then metal halide lights. They had the, I think the biggest wattage light you can get that was like a 70 watt mm. um, single ended bulb. It was like a 5,000 K really ugly yellow, but it was metal halide. And um, yeah, and just went on from there. And then I got into, um, you know, more advanced reef keeping and uh, around early 2000s, I, I, you know, got online and I hooked up with Bob Fenner, who's like my, my mentor in this. And he had this site called wet web media and, he said, you know, you really should be answering questions. You really love this stuff. It's fun. And I said, okay, let's do this. And I started working with him. And then I remember Anthony Calfo was, uh, was there. And Anthony said, you know, you really need to start talking at clubs. So him and Bob would send me out to speak at clubs around the country. And I sort of got my feet wet. And then MACNA in Pittsburgh happened in 2005, I think it was. And uh, that was my first opportunity to speak on reef keeping. I talked about aquascaping and that's where you come into the picture. You may not remember this, but I literally have a picture of one of your tanks. It was like an acro tank that you had. Yeah. And it was prominent. I think it was actually, I think it was the, the opening title shot on my presentation. It was called aquascaping for the aesthetically challenged. And yours was an example of a really well done reef tank. And everybody's like, I know a reef bum, you know, so that was kind of funny. <laughs> um, yeah. And then from there I, I spoke at, I think seven magnas and um, just, you know, you, you kind of get into that system where you get around the, the country and around the world and they start, it was kind of the lifestyle. It was fun. I mean, every month I was traveling to clubs and seeing that group of people that are speaking along the road, you made a lot of good friends. Uh, then I ended up uh, getting an offer from a company in Connecticut of all places to uh, work with their custom installation department. They had real high end aquariums and it was a really tough decision. What, uh, what, com- what, 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 uh, company uh, house was of, that? House of Fins. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, and I, it was really That used to be tough. one of my local uh, LFS, you know. Oh, okay. I used to go yeah, Robert, yeah. great guy, great people. And, um, you know, it was hard to, you know, move from Los Angeles. I was like, woof, this is, this is tough. But I, uh, I took that invite and, uh, you know, plunged into the commercial side. And I was just incredibly homesick, though. And I was looking <laughs> for any opportunity and again, going to these clubs, ironically enough, I, I went back to um, Reef Palooza in SoCal and I met Joe Caprata, who owns Manhattan Aquariums, who also had this company called Unique Corals that he wanted to re, restart. He hadn't done it in a while. He said, I'm moving to Los Angeles. I said, well, I'm living on the East Coast, but I want to go home. And so we did that. And I, you know, we, we, we kind of got together and launched the rebirth of that company. And it was just an incredible time. Um, for me, it was a big learning curve because I'm not specifically a coral guy per se. So there was a lot to learn, especially about the propagation side. But, you know, it came relatively easily and we built a big facility, had a good following and, you know, became one of the top, if I say so myself, I think we were one of the top two or three, you know, major reef uh, coral propagators out there. And they're still a fantastic company. And it was just a lot of fun. And then a couple of years of doing that, I realized I got this itch in me to go back to the freshwater roots. Don't ask me why, but I think I was always playing with certain types of aquariums when I was a kid, um, throwing leaves and twigs and stuff into tanks. And there's something organic and natural. And I think the reef hobby was getting very technical at the time. Mm. This was around 2012. It was getting very gadget driven and collector driven. And that was just, I felt that that was not my, I mean, I, I love that, but it wasn't my like, passion and i wanted to build something i thought no one is ever playing with this stuff these twigs and these blackwater aquariums and there's just it's like it reminded me of the reef hobby in 1986 and i said maybe i can start a company around this and so i started importing materials and built a website and the next thing you know we've developed into this incredible niche company that uh 
sells, you know, natural aquascaping materials for people interested in what we call botanical style aquariums. And I pulled a lot of that reef mindset with me. So that's where I'm at today, but I'm always have one hand in the reef community. So it's a lot of fun to, uh, to kind of cross back over. So with the botanical style aquarium, where, where did you kind of get the vision for that? I mean, was that something that people had been doing or was that kind of like yeah. your own idea that you just wanted to um, blow out some more? A little of both. I mean, it started really just looking at nature and looking at some of these tropical freshwater habitats and realizing that the natural world as expressed in the freshwater aquarium hobby is this sterile, pristine place with no algae, no, the water's crystal clear, plants are perfectly manicured. And that's not the way nature really is. One of the things I love about the reef hobby is that once you get your tank established, you, you sure you can keep it super clean, but you're embracing all that biodiversity on live rock and and, you know, I was a big sand bed lover. We'll talk about that later. But uh, I realized in the freshwater hobby, it, there was an aesthetic first mindset. And I'm more of a function first mindset. And that's directly attributable to my reef keeping experience and looking at things holistically. And I thought, you know, there's a way to utilize natural materials to influence the water chemistry, uh, the, the biosha, you know, the, the fungal growth, biofilms, all the things that people don't think about in freshwater. And it makes an incredibly functional, beautiful, different aesthetic aquarium. And so I started playing with that and blowing it up as much as I could. And now we've got this global following of people that are into the same thing. I didn't invent the idea. I think I elevated it. I mean, people always played with black water aquariums, which is water that has tannins in it, which is where I got my name, my company from. But um, it was more the idea of elevating this to a science. Let's... Um... So you, um, you sent me a link to a video and I think that mm -hmm. the, the good thing is, let me, uh, this is probably an appropriate time to play that video so the so folks can kind of sure. get an idea what, what tannin and, and these, uh, botanical style aquariums are all about. So let me, um, sure. let me roll that clip and I think it's only, um, a couple of minutes long. I think right? it's like a minute or two. A minute, yeah. A minute or two long and then we'll come back and we'll, uh, we'll talk about it. Absolutely. That's, that's gorgeous stuff. And I never really, you know, was aware of that category of aquarium until you, we started communicating, Scott. Yeah. Well, the, the interesting thing about so-called black water is a, a big majority of the freshwater environments of the world have this tint to them because they are influenced by soils, um, botanical materials like leaves and twigs and so forth and then branches and stuff. So very similar to the reef environments where the land and the water are interconnected, but in different ways. Um, and I've done a lot of playing with brackish lately. 
Um, and that's when I'm fascinated by brackish because it's an interesting interplay of saltwater and freshwater. And you'll get some of the reef animals coming into these brackish zones and migrating back out to sea. And they're very fertile, they're very rich. They're anything but what we'd see a reef tank as. They're a little dirty, a little muddy. Mm. I think that's a fascinating habitat. Yeah. So, so talk to us about the purpose of the leaves, the rocks, the uh, the wood in the tank. What do they do? They serve anything okay. besides aesthetics, or do they actually provide nutrients? Absolutely. What they do, the purpose of the leaves in any botanical material is to decompose. It's to provide. Not only do they impart tannins, humic substances, which are found in salt water, by the way, and other compounds into the water, but they, as they break up. They're being broken up by fungal growth. They're being broken up by bacterial biofilms, small crustaceans, a whole community of life, benthic life forms that serve to not only process nutrients like they do in a reef sink, but they serve as a supplemental food source for the fishes. And it's a much more natural, holistic biology first system. And it's a way of looking at an aquarium as not just a display, but as a little microhabitat. Which is how I think, I mean, I'll ask you, don't most reefers still kind of look at it that way? They're, you're creating a habitat as opposed to a display. Right. It's a little mini, uh, you know, ecosystem that you, ecosystem. Got, that you got going on there. And, and yeah, it's your little slice of whatever, right? So Exactly. Exactly. And that's what I was always fascinated by in reef world is I still am a big fan of the idea of a refugium. I still love deep sand beds. Um biology versus, you know, just a sterile bare bottom tank. And I find that a very, very interesting topic, you know, in the reef world. So are these tanks more difficult to keep than a standard planted freshwater aquarium tank? Or are they about on the same level? They're actually probably about as easy to keep as you can imagine. The difference is the mindset. The hardest thing that I've ran into over the years in getting people to play with this stuff was to make those mental shifts to understand that you're embracing function over just the form. You can make the tank look beautiful, but the idea is to embrace things like algae, decomposition, biofilms, even detritus. These are all fuel for biological activity. So the hard part is to keep your hands out and not want to siphon out every little bit and piece of everything that's breaking down. That's what you want. Um, and very much like my my reef tanks, I was hands on hands on reefer. You know, I'm always scraping algae and so forth. But I, I always felt that some of that detritus, some of that uh, growth on the live rock, is kind of important. And you start taking that out, you're not only taking out uh, nutrient, you're also taking out somebody's food source. So I, I think everything's interrelated, and that's a very important thing. So as far as easy to maintain, absolutely. Anybody that keeps a reef tank can easily, easily be a fantastic botanical style aquarist. In fact, I'll find it really interesting. Now, you said um, in, in terms of keeping the hands, you know, out of the tank and whatnot is a good thing for a botanical style uh, aquarium. And I, I find that also to be true for my reef tanks. You know, I, I, I feel like it's good to be hands on. But to a certain point, I do try to, like, not stick my hands in the tank for any little reason, you know, to like rearrange this or rearrange that, you know, I think one, you've yeah. got the oils from the, from the skin that can go and get into the tank and, and, and cause um, issues. But do you see parallels there as well in terms of botanical style and, and reef keeping? I mean, I don't know if that's your style in terms of reef uh, keeping, but I've always kind of like try to be like a hands-off kind of guy and yeah. nature take its course. Well, I, I, that's how I am as a reef keeper. I am sort of a hands-off guy. I believe very strongly in protein skimming. 
I believe in feeding and I believe in, I believe in scraping algae, obviously you want to be able to see the, 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 the fish yeah. and the coral, but I'm not a big one for making every single piece of detritus go away. Every bit of decomposing matter has to come out. I mean, you've dove, you've, I'm assuming you may have dove on a reef before. You see there anything, anything but pristine places. Um, and in terms of a, a reef mindset, um, it, it's a, again, reefers tend to embrace the whole picture. Freshwater guys tend to specialize in the thing that they're into, the type of fish, and 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 that the aquarium is sort of an afterthought. So it's kind of melding the two skills together right now. Um, and in reef keeping, to me, uh, one of the less the biggest lesson I learned from uh, running a coral propagation facility was we kept our facility, our, our raceways, the coral growing raceways, too clean. That was the biggest problem. Early on, we had these big four thirty foot long raceways. And, uh, you know, the water quality was amazing and pristine. You can give birth in there. I mean, it was clean. <laughs> and, but the problem was our corals look kind of pallid and they, you know, they were just kind of there. It was only when we started feeding the heck out of these tanks and letting a little bit of detritus develop that things like chalices and some of the montes and acros really started coloring up. And when you get into LPS corals, yeah, they need that nutrient. We were probably starving them. And that was an, a thing that I learned early on in my reef keeping careers. I was keeping my tanks too clean, too much hands on. What and I was going to ask what um, what's your definition of too clean in terms of nutrients like phosphates and nitrates? What would you say is a, um, a level that you like to maintain for a reef tank? To I, I do like them low. I mean, I do like phosphates, zero point five. You know, I don't want to. I don't want a barely detectable is fine. I'm not saying that I want a lot of phosphate, but I wouldn't go crazy if my phosphates were you know above point five. Something you know zero point five. Something's going up. Yeah, unless you look at the algae, I look at the big picture. I, I that one of the things that I always found unusual is a lot of reefers are hung up on numbers, and I'm sure you've had other guests talk about this. It just people get caught up in looking at the, you know, my algae, my my nitrate is this, my phosphate is this. I like to just look at the tank. Does the tank look beautiful? I've seen plenty of beautiful tanks that you just say, well, chemically, the guy doesn't even know what what's going on, but it looks great. And I've seen plenty of tanks where the guys monitor every single aspect of the tank and it looks horrible. Yeah. So it, it you know, it, it's an art as much as it's a science. Um, but I think being too clean, and that's what I always had against, but I never liked about bare bottom tanks is they tended to be too clean for my taste and look just something wasn't looking right there, but, you know, I get it. Yeah. I've, um, I, you know, I just started a, a new uh, 225 gallon peninsula tank and for my whole mm -hmm. reef keeping you know, life, I've always had sand and this is the first time I've ever had a, a bare bottom. So the tank is about six months old and it's, it's definitely different. It's, it's aesthetically, it's, it's, different. it's, it's a different look. Um, you know, I felt like I needed to do it because it's a peninsula style tank. It's six foot long. I felt like I really, I wanted to have all the, um, the recirculating pumps at the one end of that tank. Right. And I just felt like cranking all that flow at one end of the tank. I just was not, the sand. the sand was not going to be able to hold it. So, well, you know, yeah. we'll, uh, we'll see, but so far so good. I've got a few, um, starter frags in there that seem to be doing just fine. Yeah. I think, I mean, there's nothing wrong to me. There's nothing wrong with bare bottom and I've had bare bottom tanks myself. My, my biggest concern was, I think we got obsessively clean. Do you remember, again, this was like in the mid to early two thousands, there was an obsession with what they called cooking live rock. Remember people yeah. would take the live rock, they'd say, Oh, it's a phosphate source. So they put it in a, in a, a trash barrel yeah. for like a month, kill everything on it essentially, yeah. and then put back this ghost white stuff. 
And, you know, they put uh, where it really got to me is people were putting that starboard material on the bottom yeah. of the tank. Remember that? Yeah. Like for no reason. Like what was the point for that? And then I remember one day going on one of these forums and somebody put got black starboard and everybody went crazy. And I thought this is the lowest point in the reef hobby. People are <laughs> celebrating a colored cutting board on the bottom of somebody's tank as some kind of an aesthetic breakthrough. And I realized we've gone off the deep end here. And then suddenly people started putting sand back in their tank and, you know, sanity returned. But it was getting a little crazy there for a while. I think people always realized these are living systems. And if you treat them like a microcosm, they'll reward you with really healthy animals. Yeah, you know, it, it, it's interesting because I've had um, different folks on the show with different opinions in terms of what, what constitutes like sufficient uh, nutrient levels for a healthy SPS tank. You know, I've had some folks mm -hmm. be like, you know, it's 5 to 10 in terms of nitrate and uh, phosphate 0.05 to, to 0.1 is good. And then, you know, I've had some guests that, have uh, nitrate levels that are close to natural seawater levels like 0 0.02 or something or 0 0.03 or and and have right. kick-ass tanks so it's um exactly it just depends on the system i guess yeah i think again i think we get a little too obsessed about numbers and it's good and bad i mean it's great to have information about your tanks and i remember we at unique we were the first to introduce the icp oes tests with uh with uh, triton and uh, we went to, out to Germany and visited Ishan, the, the founder of Triton. And he, really amazing to bring that level of analysis to saltwater, um, to the hobby. The thing that was scary, though, is now we have hobbyists talking about, oh, I have this level of maldinium. I have this level. Some of these elements, we're not exactly certain what they do. And I think people are tending to obsess over things. I think it's great to have this information. And we're learning. And I think that level of awareness is super important. But I think in the freshwater hobby, you see the same thing. People tend to get caught up on procedure and numbers. The thing that I found in the freshwater world that's different than the saltwater world is a lot of people are set in their ways mm. because things have been, this hobby has been around for a hundred plus years, the, the, the freshwater side, and there's ways of doing things and they've worked but somebody has to come along now every once in a while. And I hope I was one of those guys to come along and push the button a little bit and say, wait a second, just because it's been done that way doesn't mean it's the best way. Right. It's one way to do it. And I've made it a big point early on that what I do is not for the everybody. Not everybody's going to like that look. Everybody's not everybody's going to like the idea of seeding some of the control of their tank to nature. Much like in the reef keeping world, a lot of guys will never give up their controllers. They want to be able to monitor ORP. They want to know everything that's going on and be able to control every aspect of their tank. And that's great. Other guys are very natural, hands-off kind of guys. Like compare like a Julian who is just a brilliant natural aquarist. Right. He can look at a tank and know what's going on. Or Mike Paletta, kind of those kind of guys. Uh, Sanjay, same thing. Sanjay plays with gadgets, but he also is a hand, he's not constantly tweaking every little thing. I have buddies here in LA that they, they have constant disasters because they're always tweaking this or that and this went wrong and you know oh, my uh, uh, my top off system went crazy. I've had multiple friends who've destroyed their aquariums with bad auto top off systems. I mean gadgetry is good, but sometimes we get a little too obsessed with that. Yeah, when when uh, Jake Adams was on the show, he famously said, um, "I am the controller," meaning that yeah. Um, yeah. he does not lean on automation from a controller and. Uh, I, you know, yeah, I, I, he's right. I agree, you know, he, he uh, did what he called his, uh, he called it his residency at Indian Corals for a while. He spent about six months in our facility tweaking and playing. And I learned so much from Jake's a good friend. I learned so much from him about that mindset. Now here's a guy though, that his idea was take a coral, 
put it in a just a bare tank and just give it the environment it needs and nothing else. And, and he taught me how to do that. And I did that. And it's kind of funny. He called it eco reef or something like that. But he was very anti-biology for a while. And now it seems like in recent discussions and things I've seen, he's sort of leaning back towards that more of like feeder tank, a little bit of life, a little bit of diversity. I think, you know, someone that understands coral as well as he does gets it. A lot of people really are starting to learn about the animals, which is so interesting to see. It's not just collecting things. Now they're learning about how these animals grow. I love that. You know, he, he mentioned something, and I'm, I'm, I'm curious about your opinion on this in terms of when he um, likes to start a reef tank. You know, when we're chatting, he said that um, he doesn't like to start it with the fish more so. He likes to start it with the corals and, and more so with like sure. SPS and, and just, um, you know, get things kind of going with that. And then, you know, then LPS and then fish. What, what are your thoughts in terms of starting a tank like that? I, I absolutely agree. Which I believe it or not, and and not uh, necessarily because I saw him do that. It's something I arrived at on my own, but his work validates that. It he's one hundred percent right. I think that the important thing is to get the the the, the biosha in there. That's why I'm I'm really happy to see that a lot of people are playing with with more of this cultivated live rock, and it's become a more important thing than ever. Um, because I think it's important to get diversity biodiversity going. One of my favorite things was. Uh, uh, you know, the places you can get live sand and uh, little benthic animals. Like uh, it was Indo-Pacific sea farms, I think in, in, in Hawaii. I used to get stuff from them all the time because I loved the fact that they were selling coralline starters and, you know, little worms and things like that. And that, that kind of thing is so important. I think we're starting to swing back to that, you know, get some life in your tank first, let it establish, then add the fish. I, I agree. You're starting an ecosystem. Think of it that way. That's what we do in the in the botanical style requirements. Get the leaves in there. Get get decomposition going. Get some you know stock it with microorganisms maybe, and then add the fish. So there's a lot of things you can. At do. what point would you say start adding SPS to a uh, to a new reef tank? You know, let, let let's say you've got your parameters hmm. squared away. I'm, I'm assuming that you need to have some consistency in terms of calcium, alkalinity, magnesium. And, right. And you got to have your all key parameters kind of like in order how how old of a tank mm -hmm. does that tank need to be before you can kind of comfortably start putting some sps in it I, my feeling is this if you're and, and because of my love of feeding if, if you're willing to embrace feeding early on i think personally as soon as the tank has stabilized from a uh, you know you've got the calcium locked in um magnesium levels that kind of stuff no nitrite and ammonia obviously after it's cycled but i think you could start it early on if you're going to feed because again those are not they're not animals that are swimming around you could target feed all those animals you could feed them at night you can pump food into that system if your chemical environment is on on point i don't see why you can't get the get those in there early on and that's a good thing because you could start them growing get them settled I think getting some of the delicate animals in early is actually not such a crazy idea. Once you've got the parameters adjusted so they're not swinging wildly, I, I don't see what the problem is with getting those animals in there. I think my one hesitation would be, you know, an ugly phase, right? With with reef tanks, you always have yeah. the uh, the ugly phase of a reef algae. tank, the algae and what have you. Yeah. How how um is there any way to avoid that, or do you kind of like wait until after the ugly phase before you start adding corals? You know, that's a good, a good question. I mean, I think 
again, the faster you get the corals growing, the faster you get through the ugly phase. Because again, if you're feeding, it's not just the corals that are feeding, it's the other life forms. The other life forms are going to outcompete the corals with the available nutrients. Once you get coralline growing, once you get, uh, I, I think, yes, you can get, your corals can get smothered in algae if you get a little too crazy and you might want to do some manually removing it. But I, but I think the thing that I've learned in both reef keeping and in freshwater is to push through. I really believe that. I think too many hobbyists, I know that that's the big point where a lot of hobbyists, we used to get questions like this all the time on Bob Fenner's site about algae and more people leave the hobby. Bob used to always say that more people leave the uh, hobby because of algae than any other yeah. problem. But I think the, the problem is I think people, uh, they tend to give up too soon. They think, oh, this is never going to get better. It might take months for your tank to find itself. But if we if we constantly are scrubbing things out, adding algae removers, changing massive quantities of water, getting off our game, all that's happening is it's like a big reset. It's like Groundhog Day all over again. It's just you're resetting the clock. I think when you look at what the cause is, oh, I use I have poor quality source water. I need to you know change my RODI membranes, or uh, I'm feeding too much of this stuff, or I'm adding, I'm dosing. Like I had a lot of people would come to me when at the corals with, with the corals. They would say, you know, I'm dosing this or that. They would use part of somebody's system. Yeah. And, you know, probiotics or, and like, well, why are you using part of this system and not all of it? If you're going to try something, don't do it. It's not like making a soup. You're not adding a little of this, a little of that. So take one methodology and stick with it. My favorite methodology is nature. Nature finds a way. It goes through some ugly phases, but if you, if you ride it out, it'll almost always correct itself. I think the big problem comes when we try to intervene. Scott, I really Scott, do. When you say um, feed the tank in terms of the corals, what what do you um, like to feed in terms of coral food? Cyclopes is one of my favorites. I, I love that. Um, any of the planktons feeds that are out there, I think, are great. There's some really interesting stuff out there now. Uh, I'm a little rusty on some of these things because I haven't directly worked with them, but I, I I've seen a lot of interesting artificial feeds, a lot of neat. Uh, um, live feeds. I've always believed in the diversity. I, I'm not just a one kind of food thing. I believe in a little of everything, live copepods, um, uh, plankton, um, cyclops, that kind of stuff, just a variety of things. I think that's really important because you have a variety of mouths and you have tons of mouths. Not everybody's mouth is visible. Some of those organisms living in the rock need different types of food. Uh, I think it's really important to do that. Well, what um, about amino, what yeah. about amino acids? Yeah, you know what? I, I, I agree. Aminos uh, are important. And that's something Jake taught me when we were uh, at Unique. We, uh, he started using, uh, it was Julian Sprung's product, um, uh, AcroPower. Yeah. And uh, there was a few, and a few other um, amino supplements we played with. They worked very, very well. Got incredible colors out of the corals. But again, I think you have to be consistent. I think, and Greg Carroll, who was, I see Greg in the feed. Greg used to, uh, to he has a term SPS, stability promotes success. And I, like, that's a mantra that Greg was probably laughing right now. Cause I, I never forgot that. I use that all the time in my mind, stability above almost everything else. If yeah. you're going to do something, be consistent, get things stable, use the same food, the same, whatever. Sure. You can try some new things, but stability, I think is really important doing the same thing over and over again because it works. Yeah. Um, what do you think in terms of parameters? would be the most important thing to, to keep stable. Who is for chemical parameters to keep stable or just parameters, parameters in, general, in general, like just environment, environmental. Well, conditions. you know, like if Ooh. you had to pick, um, I mean, I always, you know, yeah. I'm, well, I'm going to kind of 
I'll, I'll let you answer the question, but uh, between calcium, alkalinity, magnesium, right. pH, temperature, right. what would you say in terms of stability is the uh, most important thing? Well, without question, I'd say calcium and alkalinity in a stony coral tank. I mean, obviously that's important. But I think the other thing, the other parameter, well, that's a parameter wise, but the other environmental factor that's important, flow. I think water flow is so important. And thank God there's some amazing products out there now you know, really good pumps with DC pumps and all kinds of interesting flow systems and wave makers and stuff like that. I think flow is really important, but parameter wise, um, again, I'm going to default back to Greg's thing. Stability promotes success, whatever parameters you're playing with specific gravity, use it. The other thing I'm a big fan of is like with salt. I have a salt brand that I like. I use it. I don't switch up. I don't go to the store. Oh, this is on sale. I'm going to buy that. I wait, I buy, I stock up. I buy the same salt mix. I believe there's consistency. That's really important. As you know, there's subtle differences in every single formulation. And when you're doing those changes, what does that do? It creates a stress for those animals. So yep. anytime you're varying too many things, I think we get too caught up on the specific thing and not caught up on the big picture, which is keep consistent. What are your thoughts in terms of the importance of pH? You know, there's been a lot of, um, you know, folks talking about how important pH is. I had Chris Meckley on from ACI Aquaculture and he's like, chase the pH, mm -hmm. don't chase the, uh, the alkalinity, chase the, uh, chase the pH. What, um, how important do you think pH is in terms of having success with a, uh, an SPS-dominant uh, reef tank? That's a great question. I, th I, I agree with him. I think he's, he's correct in, in asserting that pH is important. I, th the thing that I've always tried to do is smooth out the day. I'm sure most chorus do this now. Smooth out that day-night fluctuation. You know, light the sump at night with macroalgae. Since there's so many macroalgae reactors, I have a feeling that pH isn't going to become as big a problem for people as maybe it has been. Um, but I, I agree with them. I think, um, pH is important. I think nutrient export is really important too. consistently taking water, you know, doing water exchanges, the old fashioned humble water exchange is still one of the best things you can do. And I, I it's still, of course, to this day, still hate doing them for whatever reason, we all hate them, but we, we know we have to do them and not when we feel like it. I've always believed in small water exchanges, maybe once or even twice a week. I'd rather do two 5% water changes a week than one 25% water change once a month. I just consistency. Um, again. Yeah. I, I religiously do a 10% water change every week. That's kind of like been, that's awesome. Been kind of like, it's my favorite been kind of like my routine. And, and when I do the, you know, the water changes, I don't do an automatic water change. I don't trust those uh, automatic water change. I don't either. Gizmos. Don't either. Thank you, Chris C., for that super chat. Really appreciate that. Um, <laughs> it um, they scare me. So, and you, know, you said you, a buddy of yours had a tank crash because of one of those things. So I, I don't. I've had I've had two people that did. I had one guy that flooded his entire house mm -hmm. because of an automatic water changer when he was out of town. It caused uh, literally like a hundred thousand dollars in damage. Yikes. Yeah. yeah. So yeah, I don't trust stuff like that. Automation's good, but water change. Come on, siphon hose, low tech. Right. And, and you can't, I mean, I always, you know, you mentioned the importance of maybe leaving a little detritus in the tank. I, I also, I do like to siphon the detritus out of my sump and wherever I can find it in, in you know, the bare bottom. Sure. Of doing it, but uh, you're not going to get it all. So there's going to still be some no. detritus around, but you can't do that with an automatic water chain. You know, you're not, you're not going to be able to get the detritus right. out of there. Right. And, and, and detritus too, I think it's a bad rap. I mean, I, I know in freshwater it does. I, detritus, when you think about it, what is it? It's essentially the end product of biological filtration. A lot of it's probably inert. There's a difference. We've been schooled since we were, you know, early in the fish hobby that, that you don't want stuff accumulating in your tank. Well, detritus is one thing, but 
Well, I think what the big point is, don't let, your, don't let fish poop and uneaten food accumulate because it's indicative of another problem or something that you're not doing right. Detritus in and of itself is not the bad guy. A lot of, again, your, your chalices, a lot of corals will use that for food. If you do gut content analysis on a lot of fishes, both freshwater and marine, detritus is an important part of almost everybody's diet, not just tangs and just about every fish. There's some detritus in there. So to get every single bit is impossible, but I agree. You want to get some of it. You want to smother corals and stuff like that. But yeah, that's important. So Greg is, uh, is, uh, um, urging folks to hit that, uh, that like button. If, if you guys are, if you guys are digging this stream, hit that like button. We've only got 12 likes yeah. there right now and, and, uh, more people will find it, do the recommended, uh, recommendations. So hit the like button if you haven't hit it already. Um, so Scott, there's a couple of things we, uh, we've kind of touched on briefly, but I want to dig a little bit deeper into, you know, so during that video that you showed, uh, we, we, we watched from, uh, Tannen in terms of the, mm -hmm. um, the uh, the scape, you know the the aquascaping, mm -hmm. some really cool stuff in terms of what can be done with with the wood and and um, the leaves and and the stone and what have you. But um, so there's been kind of a transition the last I don't know how many like ten or fifteen years in terms of the reef keeping hobby where you know back when I first got into it years and years ago it was the the rule of thumb was two pounds of live rock for every gallon of water, and yep. things have changed a lot. You know, so now it's all minimalist in terms of the aquascaping. What What are your thoughts in terms right. of, you know, obviously there's been a big transition away from live rock to the dry rock, and it, and it and it's allowed people to do a lot of really pretty awesome looking things. But is it practical? And yeah, so yeah, well, curious about your thoughts on that. I mean, I, I agree. It was all always about two pounds per gallon, and the problem is early in the reef hobby, how did you get a hundred pounds of rock into a 50 gallon tank and made a big old yeah, wall. Brick wall. That was a real problem. <laughs> yeah, brick wall and circulation was a problem. And yeah, if you, you know, if a, if a power head went out of commission, it was abandoned in place because you couldn't get to it, you know, so much wall. But I think now it's, it's not so much a recipe of X pounds per gallon. I think it's, we're looking at things more, again, more holistically in, in the reef hobby as well. The minimal thing you look, it's an aesthetic thing. I get it. People want to do what looks cool and feels cool because in the end of the day, you want to enjoy the tank. But I think if we take a biology kind of first mindset and apply that to everything, even aquascaping, you get a different outcome. Um, the, it's important to use enough live rock to provide extra foraging for your fish, to provide space for the corals that you want to keep, uh, and to create you know, breakups and water flow patterns. I think that's important. Um, again, aesthetics first versus function. I, I probably lean towards function or what I call functional aesthetics, which is a blending of it. it the function comes first and it just happens to look cool. Um, I know people do all kinds of cool things with the, with the dry rock now, which is great. And I love that there's all those dry rock because it's ecologically sound. And, you know, you can make it live pretty easily. Right. There's Marco rock and all that stuff's great. Um, I, just, I just believe that giving that surface area for biological activity is so important. And I have found over the years, and maybe you're the same tanks that tend to have a little more rock, in my opinion, seem to be a little more forgiving, a little more stable because there's more biology. You're not just dependent on the equipment and the gear. I mean, it's very easy to polish your water to the point of it being essentially, you know, dead right. with all the gear that we have now. Um, but I think it's, I think sand is going to come back into more vogue 
also over time. I mean, you're starting to see a lot of sand beds anyway, but I think sand, the importance of sand beds is important. Um, I think the importance of some of these mud, like miracle mud and mineral mud and marine biosediment, I think those are still haven't been appreciated yet by enough, of course, even though those products have been out for 15, 20 years, there's more to it. Um, the, the organisms that live in the mud. So I think looking at it as the big picture, that's really important. Yeah. You know, you, you mentioned mud and, and I was looking through some of the articles you've, you've written and, and blog posts. And I think in one of them, you said that um, mud was, and I'm quoting here, was one of those odd tangents that hit right around the early 2000s refugium crazy and sort of faded quickly into the background. But you think that um, mud potentially could be making Absolutely. a comeback? I think it can. And, and, and the reason I feel it can make a comeback is because I think people, you start seeing the, the problems, quote unquote, that people are having. If you go on the forums, like I know you do, and I, I see the problem. So many of these things could be mitigated by consistency and biological stability. And I think one of the things that, creates biological stability is a lot of life in the tank and mud fosters a lot of organisms. And I think that what happened is there was a big exodus of sand beds and all that stuff in the early two thousands. And so mud, all that stuff went out the window. I mean, isn't it funny that only in about the last oh, seven or eight years that now we're back into cultivating macroalgae. Now, yeah. now that every company makes a macroalgae reactor when people were doing that in refugiums for years, but it sort of got the cold shoulder. Now that we have a piece of gear that puts all the algae in one little container, everybody's all into it. It's another piece of gear I can add to the system. But the reality is the benefit has been the same as it was when we were doing it in refugium. So, and what is it? It's biological diversity. It's nutrient export because you're growing calorpa or you're growing catomorpha or whatever. Um, so yeah, I think all that's coming full circle. I think people are looking for something a little more I don't know the word I want to use again, organic, that sounds kind of dumb, but organic, you know, there's an organic experience. They just feel it. So I think mud will be back. Folks, I um, just want to remind you that um, feel free to ask uh, Scott questions or put your comments in, in the, uh, in the chat. So, so Scott, if you wanted to set up um, mud in your uh, reef tank, how would you go about doing that? Is that something that you would have a, um, a separate little compartment in your sump for? Personally, what I would do, um, I would actually set up a system designed, to, uh, I integrated into the display. I would either mix it with, you know, aragonite or another substrate. I would really look at the way, you know, a lot of us say, oh, I'm setting up a tank that's like a lagoon. Well, have, if you've been to a lagoon, you see what the, what the currents are like. You see how the life forms are there. You see that there is mud from tidal influxes and look at how a lagoon really functions. Lagoons do accumulate mud. They do accumulate broken bits of rubble. So creating a, a mud zone or a mud bottom, even look in Indonesia where they have the muck bottoms and there's incredible animals that live there, you would adjust the types of corals you're keeping. You know, you'd be keeping uh, more LPS, more elegance, more, um, you know, fungia, those kind of corals that are more commonly found in that type of environment, as opposed to trying to incorporate it into a high energy SPS reef. That's a recipe for a lot of stuff blowing in the water. Uh, but I think it's about dedicating yourself to a different aquarium altogether. So it's that multiple tank syndrome thing, but I think that's how I would play with it. Sure, you could put in a refugium, but I would rather do a display around it. I think that's so more kind of connect that uh, sort of um, mud-based uh, tank to the uh, to the display. What um, what would you have to do in terms of maintaining a um, you know the mud in in the system? Don't touch it. Don't touch it. Really, <laughs> really, I wouldn't touch it. I, I really. Uh, 
I mean, unless you're getting an accumulation of, you know, biofilm or something that's so gross that you just don't want to look at it. The reality is it's a functional component of the ecosystem. As long as your water chemistry is stable um, and, and the parameters are fine and you're not seeing crazy ammonia spikes or the nitrate is not through the roof and the corals look good. I, there, there's very little you would need to do. You wouldn't want to disturb it. There's a lot of biological processes that go there. And that's, again, um, and that's a question, I think, for your, for your audiences. Do a lot of people, when they siphon their tanks, are they going into the sand bed? Uh, I know that that's always been kind of a no-no with me, is maybe, maybe the top layer, if you want to get some algae or whatever off. But, you know, you're disturbing the very processes that run the system. And I think that's something we have to think about, too. So mud's the same way. Interesting. And, and for a um, botanical style aquarium, what are you doing in terms of the substrate? Do you, are you taking care of that at all? Are you siphoning anything out of there or is it um, similar type of thing? Yeah, good. Similar type of approach because what happens with botanical type aquariums, I've done aquariums where this whole substrate is leaf litter. And as it breaks down, it forms a sort of an organic detritus. You put some twigs down there or whatever. It becomes the operating system of the aquarium. That's where the, the biological activity takes place, the denitrification, um, the food supplemental food production and i believe that same thing goes in the reef tank um i think a rubble bottom would be an incredible aquarium uh, a reef tank just a, entirely consisting of like that you know uh like the, the branch you know the branching yeah. uh, uh parietes block or whatever and just smashed up pieces of rubble i think that's amazing because the life forms that you grow there would be remarkable your wrasses would go crazy pseudochromus would love it your angels and tangs would love it and your corals would grow over it. So I think rubble is really another one of those things we can do. And you can run hot, you can make it as high energy as you want with rubble. There's no sand blowing around. So I think alternative mm -hmm. substrates is a cool thing. That's that's something I would play with. And, and in fact, my next reef tank will maybe be something like that too. Um, All right. So you, very you brought it up now. You're, um, you're, you're, you're considering starting a new reef tank. What, yeah. what is that going to yeah. look like? What do you think? It's going to look okay. I think I think it's going to look like one of two things. It's either going to be um, uh, mangroves, mm. actually uh, a mangrove kind of estuary type setup with elegance and maybe Ganiopora, mm. uh, Stylus You know, interesting kind of little corals like that. Uh, or it would be literally uh, a rubble bottom, like we talked, maybe six inches of rubble. Uh, or the other idea would just be just sand one little thing of rock and a colony of like pusillopora pink pusillopora mm -hmm. just one coral a monospecific kind wow, of setup cool. something just different i, I know it, that's hard to do because everybody loves to go with a lot of corals i think it could be done i think it would be striking i've yet to see other than xenia somebody do a real monospecific reef tank or a coral tank um and i remember it, when i was in the south pacific i was in uh, in uh, bora bora and in French Polynesia. And I remember walking out under the reef, you know, a couple hundred yards out on the, in the lagoon there and it would just be sand. And all of a sudden you see this rock and a massive parietes or, or whatever the, the coral was and tons of fish. The longer you sat there, the more fish would come in and out of this thing, but it was like a desert. And then this one coral, you know, like this is really cool. I just never, never got around to doing that in an aquarium. I think that'd be fun. What what are your um, what are your thoughts in terms of lighting these days? You know, there's um, just been such a focus on on LEDs yeah. and and um, you know, people still have a lot of success with T5s. I've been using metal halides for pretty much my whole reef keeping career, yeah. but I I have um, switched over to LEDs for my new tank. What what are your thoughts in terms of lighting on a reef tank? 
I agree with you. I love I love T5. I think it's 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 just there's something even about the color on T5 that's beautiful. But LED is way more efficient. I love the new LED lights that are out. Um, the ability to to control is really important. I think the one thing that's a little crazy is there's so many options that I think people tend to get a little bit yeah crazy with it. And I think that's one thing that it's nice to see manufacturers coming out with default settings or at least types of settings. I think that's super important. And and I'm happy to see these connected, you know, companies like, uh, um, you know, Ecotech and, you know, Apex and so forth, when they're talking about lighting, being able to actually download actual information from say the, uh, an environment in the South Pacific and replicate what that lighting profile is and program that into your lighting system. That would be an interesting new step, you know, real-time satellite update on the lighting. So if the clouds are passing over, it starts to dimming. That's cool. You know, I, I don't see why that is not possible nowadays. Everybody's resources are so connected, but I think that's how to, it's, it's about how we utilize lighting. My favorite lighting of all time, double-ended, uh, 250 watt double-ended halides. I love those, the uh, hey, 20,000 K. It's great. Hey, lights are so easy, man. And you just like plug yeah. them in, you light them up and you don't have to worry about it. these LEDs. You got like all these nine different channels, the spectrum and the intensity. And I mean, yeah. geez, you can just play and play and play. And I think that's what I've under, my understanding is that uh, that's where people can really get into trouble. Tweaking. Well, I think so. I think that's the problem. Again, it, it, it's, it's the best of times and it's the worst of times. We have this amazing technology the problem is, I think, as a course, we feel obligated to try every single aspect of it. And I just think that sometimes we overcomplicate that. It becomes a hobby in and of itself. And we have people that are so into their lights and their pumps, and which is great because we need those people. But you lose sight of the fact that the idea is it's to power the life in your aquarium. And, and you see the same thing happening in the freshwater world, too, is people are getting into the – they're discovering LED lights now 14 years after – We've been, you know, perfecting them. And it's like, oh, well, these are amazing. <laughs> and there's running into the same problems. Uh, what do I program? There's too many channels. You know, it's unfortunately, we've brought the technology out, which is great, but we've made it so complicated that I think people need to learn to just settle on something and walk away, you know, and just, okay, I'm going to set, this is the lighting profile I'm going to use because animals have to adjust every time you tweak the lighting. I mean, it, that's a real problem. So it in, in terms of like some parallels between the two, in terms of the botanical style, freshwater, and, and reef keeping, would, would, what would you say are the um, some of the most obvious parallels that you can draw between you know those different types of aquariums in terms of keeping them and having success? Yeah, I think the most obvious is that um, they are both diverse biological microcosms, and by taking care of the microcosm, all the life forms, the fungal growth, the bacteria, the biofilms, all the things in a botanical style aquarium, you're taking care of the entire aquarium. Just like in a reef tank, if you're taking care of the sand bed, you're you know, feeding so the organisms within the live rock are getting food and the coral fish are happy. It's a holistic kind of approach. And I think that is, to me, very exciting to see in the reef hobby is that it's, you know, in, in coming back and forth between the two, I'm seeing, wow, there's more of an awareness of that. And it's really great to see that. You know, um, it's, it's interesting because, um, I, you know, when I first started keeping aquariums, I started out in the, uh, in the freshwater, you know, keeping a freshwater tank and, and, um, you know, it was like a couple of goldfish in a two gallon tank. I grew up, my father mm -hmm. kept, um, you know, um, fish only saltwater tanks. So that kind of like put the, uh, the bug in my head early on. 
But then I graduated yep. to uh, to planted freshwater aquariums, and I kind of found that to be hard. I I really did. It, it, is it hard. was hard. I didn't use um, CO two, you know, for the plants, and I really really wanted to create an environment where I had a natural environment, not plastic plants. And and right. and um, so it was, you know, I got a lot of joy out of it, but it was a little bit frustrating to me. And and I I thought maybe it was because I wasn't using. Um, you know, the, uh, the, the CO2. CO2. I, you know, I think personally, I'm not a big fan of freshwater planted tanks because it, it's what's happened is it's turned into this high tech sort of thing. And it's the joy is not there for me, but if you can keep a reef tank, you would kill it in a planted aquarium tank. You do great because you're familiar with the idea of lighting CO2 injection technology. Um, but there's lots of methodologies, just like there are in reef keeping. There's a lot of methodologies to freshwater tank. There's dirted freshwater tanks that are actually using terrestrial soil and growing plants. So there's a, there's a lot of room for technique, just like there is in the reef keeping world. I think the crossover potential between the two hobbies has never become more obvious to me than in the last few years, realizing that it's it's all a challenge. And the the interesting frontier to me in freshwater is to replicate as closely as possible the form and the function of these hab- these niche right. habitats, you know, yeah. very acidic habitats, you know, mucky habitats, whatever. It's the same in reef keeping. We've got all this great data in reef keeping. And so I'd love to see more people playing with that. It just, as a, I don't want to say an outsider, but as someone who's been, you know, sort of on the outside of the reef world in recent years, the thing I see when I, when I look from the other side of the fence sometimes is we're still doing a lot of the same things and having the same problems. And I don't know if it's because new people came into the game or people are too caught up in maybe the technology or some people are only about collecting corals or, or what it is, but there's the core group of people that are advancing and doing all these cool things. But then there's some people still having the same problems and it's the same in freshwater. Hobbyists need to feel more free to try new things, I think. What, um, what are, I guess, what were some of the, the big challenges that you faced in terms of keeping you know, a reef tank and, and how did you kind of overcome those challenges? And, and what, you know, what would be your advice today to somebody that um, is hitting roadblocks, keeping a reef tank? I think we touched on one earlier. I think it's pushing through that ugly, if there is an ugly phase, it's, it's, I think the biggest roadblocks in reef keeping, besides the initial intimidation that a lot of people feel, I know talking to a lot of freshwater people, they're just scared to death of like, oh my God, test for everything. And there's, it's it's not getting caught up in the, the complication. You don't have to have every single gadget. Have a nice, a bigger tank than you think you do. You know, have a good protein skimmer, great circulation, good lighting. Don't get cheap stuff. You know, that's the one thing that in freshwater and in marine, it's a, don't skimp on equipment. Get good stuff, the best you can afford. Um, but but push. I think it's mental shifts, not, not getting worried about my tank where I think it should be. Your tank is on schedule based on what nature wants to do with it. You know, the, the, the nitrogen cycle, oh, it took three weeks to cycle weeks versus, it doesn't matter. It'll cycle eventually if you nature do what she does. And I think that's the hardest thing for a lot of hobbyists because we have all this equipment, particularly in the reef end of the hobby, all this really amazing technology, but that's still, nature will kick your butt if you don't follow her rules. Right. It doesn't matter. They don't, nature doesn't care that you spent $30,000 on equipping your reef tank. Nature cares that you're not trying to beat the nitride cycle, you know, that kind of thing. So it's, it's about patience and learning and actually learning. Hobbyists of all levels need to, I mean, they need to go to watch your your, uh, your podcast. They need to read more. 
people need, if you're into something, you need to read more. You need to research. And that's the one thing that's consistently been frustrating to me as a person who gets out there and talks. And it's probably frustrating to you is basic things. People are jumping to third base without understanding the fundamentals. And it's not that hard. And you should be interested in it if this is your hobby and your passion. And I think so many problems can be overcome by people just understanding the very basics of aquarium keeping, freshwater or marine. Um, what, what do you and doing the work? What do you think about misinformation out there? I mean, you you uh, you had your own forum on Reef to Reef at, at one point, and um, you know sometimes there is bad information that can be um, communicated on these forums, even in social media. How um, yeah. how can people that are new to the hobby or, or relatively new kind of cut through that and and uh, not make you know some mistakes in terms of taking advice from somebody that might not be the best person to take advice from? I think the important thing is, like with anything, is is you go to the major channels, go to a, a podcast like yours, go read some of the blog, go to Reef Builders, go to uh, Reef.org, you know, go to all these different sites and look at the people that are writing consistent articles, the, the, the quote unquote well-known people in the Reef world. They're that way because they've been doing it right for a very long time. I would subscribe to... I listen to everybody's advice with a grain of salt, but I would look at people's work, their body of work. The mindless guy, you know, Reef Guy 26 on, you know, <laughs> on the forum, uh, you don't know what this guy is. He's just regurgitating. That's a problem with the hobbies. People regurgitate stuff without maybe even having secondhand, without even having experience personally. And worse yet, some people regurgitate bad things. Oh, you can't do that. You can't keep this. Somebody was the first guy to keep a coral. Somebody was the first guy to keep pipe fish alive. Somebody was the first guy to grow Calerpa. You know, you, you, you can't immediately just, you know, just because one person's giving you negative vibes. That's how come we got into cooking live rock. One guy couldn't keep his tank going in 2003 because he was incompetent, didn't do water changes or whatever. Told you that, oh, all live rock is bad. You have to nuke it and cook it. And, and that's how crazy tangents start. I think the importance is to read the basics, unambiguously, you know, objective information, get a good book. You know, there's some really wonderful books out there. The Sprung and Dobeek books, um, read stuff that Bob Fenner used to write. There's just a lot of resources. There's this resource. I mean, the guest list that you've had just perused the last year. It's like, it's a who's who of guys that really know what they're doing. I got uh, John, just, John Delbeek is coming on to the show in a, in a few weeks. <laughs> so that I'm looking forward yeah. to that one. That'll, that'll be awesome. Oh, yeah. But um, so, Scott, you, you, you mentioned what you're talking about here is is kind of um, reminding me of, of something. Another quote that I that I read about in terms of when you were at Unique Corals and and it was about um, reef keeping philosophies. And, and I think while you're at Unique Corals, you talked about the responsibility of being a reef keeper. Yeah. How does that play into the, uh, to the whole equation here in terms of the responsibility of being a reef keeper? Well, I think I think it. it it goes into the equation in that we have an ethical responsibility to the animals that we keep. And it's important to know that we're not, I guess we're, what, I, what the real gist of that, that particular line was, I, I would see a lot of people just, it was really cool to buy that expensive fish because I can impress my friends and show them that, look, I got a uh, whatever kind of angel fish or whatever, or I got this really cool acro and, if you don't have the skill to keep it, these are precious resources. We have a responsibility, not only to the animals that we keep, we also have a responsibility to the hobby. We have a responsibility to pass on information that is firsthand. Guess what? I failed. There's nothing wrong with going online, showing a picture of your algae filled tank and saying, guys, I don't know what I'm doing wrong. Here's what I've done. 
it doesn't matter. This is a very supportive community. And I think social media is wonderful, but I think it's, it's trained us to show only our best side, not the tank that's filled with, you know, algae and brown corals and whatever. I think it's a point that we have to feel comfortable. There's so many supportive people. I mean, you know, this It's just the community yeah. and reef keeping is amazing. Yeah. There's always a local guru guy in your community or yeah. a club member or something. It, it take comfort in the fact that there's really great information out there. And the responsibility is for all of us to keep people in the hobby and not spread false information that, oh, this is hard to do. It's really sad. Again, spending time in the freshwater world, so many people are convinced that reef keeping is just so hard and so expensive. Yeah, you could spend $100,000 outfitting a reef tank. Yeah. You could also do it for five hundred yeah. and have an amazing tank. Yeah. It doesn't matter. Some of the best tanks I ever saw were you know, small tanks outfitted well and run by somebody that knows what they're doing. Um, so, yeah, that's a really important responsibility. We all have that. Yeah, yeah. Um, what What do you think in terms of uh, you, you? You kind of alluded to this, but um, I've had other folks say that it's really important to have a mentor. You know, to to really find somebody that um, you know has just been been doing it for a long time, done it right, and kind of like copy him or her. You know, I, I, it's a it's a double edged sword because sure, I believe we should find people that that have objectively good information that. A general consensus is a guy like, oh, Julian knows what he's talking about. Mike Paletta knows what he's talking about. Jake Adams knows what he's talking about. You know, people like that. And Greg Carroll, my buddy, knows what he's talking about. You look at people that are successful and they can say, I'm doing this every day. I'm a practicing reefer. But most of these guys will be the first to tell you that, look, this is what works for me. Right. Your mileage may vary. And I think it's yeah. so important to understand that there is no one way. I mean, Rich Ross does a great talks about how his his tank is does the anti-tank. I mean, the parameters are all over the place, but his tank, his corals look great. It works for him. He's not going to tell you, oh, just ignore your tank. Don't change what, you know, the problem is you get a lot of guys out on social media that will say, you know, I haven't done a water change in six months and look how amazing my tank is. That doesn't help. I mean, that's great. You could say, well, here's a, here's a case study. I haven't done water changes in six months. My tank's doing well. I wouldn't recommend this, but it's never that never follows. It's just a in your face. Look, I don't change my water. And I think we, that's, again, the responsibility of being a reefer, too, is we have to be honest about that kind of stuff. There's more than one way to do this, as you know, oh, for sure. What do you, what do you think yeah. in terms of um, and I've, I've talked about this with other guests in terms of using natural means versus chemicals to help solve a problem like an algae problem? What are your thoughts on that? I'm very opinionated about that because I believe most algae problems, as you know, have their basis in one or two things, excessive nutrient, excessive light, you know, a meeting and a constant replenishment. The problem is when you start using, you know, algicides, those are indiscriminate, right? Isn't zooxanthellae is an algae. So these are not coral safe. They're, they're, they're toxins. And when you start adjusting parameters rather than look at the root problem, hey, I'm using low quality source water. I'm using, you know, crappy, you know, uh, salt mix. I'm not doing water changes enough. I don't have enough circulation. You can almost always trace the root cause of algae, for example, to what nutrient excesses usually not managed correctly or not assimilated by the system. So to me, it's, it's more about um, common sense, finding the root cause as opposed to a chemical. There are times when I suppose all else fails, there's maybe something you need to tweak or adjust. But I worry sometimes that you think that 
yeah, everything needs to have a plug and play solution. And sometimes it doesn't. Sometimes you can do, as you know, you can do everything right and still get your butt kicked yeah. by nature. Oh, yeah. No. It, it's just, they, you know, and, and having that awe of, wow, this works. And other times you could do something almost always wrong and somehow your tank still makes it. Um, there's no one, again, no one way to do it. But I think I tend to not lean on chemicals uh, as much. I believe that there are some things you should be adding, sure, because they benefit. But you know, what is it? Uh, boy, old saying, John Tullock. Remember John yeah, Tullock? Yeah, he yeah. said, tweak and then test. Or test and test, tweak, excuse me. That's like such a great mindset. If you're going to add something, you should be able to test for it. Don't add it just because they, whoever they are, say to do it. Um, so yeah. Oh, somebody said, would you believe in a situation that would not constitute changing water regularly? Can you manage nutrients and trace elements uh, so that water changes aren't necessary? I, you know, okay, I, I, I personally don't believe that. Now, I know, like, for example, the Triton method is very interesting because advocate to some extent not doing a whole right. lot of water changes to correct things. What it is is a deconstructed water change because what they're doing is they're tracking everything that's all the chemical constituents in the water and doing an adjustment. I mean, one of the things a water exchange does, obviously, is it resets the chemical parameters. If you have other nutrient export mechanisms in place, I guess, theoretically, it could be run that way. Now, I've seen the tanks of the guys at Triton, and they're amazing. Would I run a reef tank like that? Personally, it's outside of my scope of interest to follow that kind of stuff. It's just too much for me. I'd rather just do a water change. But can you go without a water change? I personally just don't think that's a good idea. I, I just, I, uh, I think that the, the problem is it, it's one thing to manage the, the chemical components of the water. It's another thing about organics have to go somewhere. They, you can't, you can't have perfect nutrient export. You know, you can't have this much in and exactly that much out by just somehow balancing the tank. I think that's a myth. I could be wrong. That's my gut feeling. What do you think? I mean, do you have a different opinion on that? You know, um, I, I was just thinking in, in terms of the, um, well, getting back to the, uh, to the algae, you know, mm -hmm. um, part of it, and then we'll get back to this other part. But, uh, I think one, one thing that I wanted to ask you in terms of the algae stuff that I see a lot of, and I've, I've experienced myself is that, uh, Hey, I got a lot of, um, algae in the tank, whether it's cyano or, um, you know, diatoms, whatever it is. Yet I have zero nitrates and zero phosphates, right. you know, so right. is that all about pretty much the algae absorbing all the nitrates and phosphates and you're getting a false positive on the, um, on the test kits due to that? That's a good question. I'm, and I'm not, not a chemist, so I couldn't give you a direct answer on that, but here's my theory. And I think it's right. We're testing what's in the water column, right? When you think about it, most of the time when you get these cyano outbreaks, it's in an isolated spot somewhere in the substrate. There's probably a localized source of whatever that algae needs to thrive right in that area. And it's physically growing in that area. I've always believed that. And I've always found that to be true. Inexplicably, you'll always see that one spot in your tank. Maybe it's where the flow just isn't there or something. And that's the place of the algae. I, I have to believe that there's these little micro habitats within your aquarium. So I agree. You could have clean by aquarium standards water and still have algae breakouts in certain places. Um, and like you said, maybe some of it's bound up in the material. And that's, that's why I do like the idea of multiple nutrient export mechanisms, protein skimmer, water exchanges, macroalgae, you know, refugium or a reactor, activated carbon, you know, just so you have layers of things to fall back on quality source water. 
but yeah, I, that's like, that's a tough one because I don't know if there's really a great answer. I don't know if anybody really knows exactly, but you look on a reef. I mean, again, having dove on many reefs, uh, there's tons of algae growing on right up to right. where the corals are. There's a lot of algae out there. It's not pristine. Again, some of that's in our head. And that's the same thing we've had with this freshwater thing is like people have it in their head that it, everything's pristine and crystal clear because that's the way it's presented to us. But the reality is a real reef is anything but spotless. There's dictyota, the nastiest of all algae everywhere. You know, and, and if you saw that in your reef tank, you'd freak, but it's growing like mad in the wild and they're perfectly healthy corals. So, you know, we're a closed system. It's different, but yeah. Yes. And, you know, and, and um, I agree with you in terms of, uh, you know, water changes and, and what have you, I, I would not be able to um, manage the, um, the Triton method in terms of just being able to, to dose the traces and, and to, um, you know, manage, manage parameters that way. Do you think that you're getting sufficient um, replacement of those trace elements straight up with water changes, or do you think you should be dosing traces on top of water changes? Do you think that's important? I think, again, if, if test, the problem is can we, we can't test for all of these trace elements. If testing dictates that you have a deficiency, that's where Triton is super right. valuable, is you can see what's going on, and it's super accurate. So that's a very valuable system for that. But if testing dictates that you have a deficiency in something, by all means, I would dose for it because it obviously shows that your tank maybe has a greater need for, you know, strontium or whatever. And yes, there's a certain amount of strontium in every salt mix and there's a certain amount of whatever in every salt mix. The corals are going to use that up as they need it. Or the animals in the tank are going to use it up as they need it. But if you have a lot of macroalgae, your iodine level is going to go down. You know, you sometimes you do have to dose. Absolutely. You got um, another question there from Robert, uh, poor man. Asking yeah. you to comment on a system with a deep sand bed over a plenum in a refugium with Cato as the only export system. <laughs> it's kind of the classic uh, combination. This is a real question. I like yeah. that. Uh, hey, you know what? I would say go for it because plenums, I never quite understood why you need the complexity of a plenum to create a void space for denitrification when you can just go with a deep sand bed and not have to worry about, you know, going into your plenum and, and causing problems. So I would probably nix the plenum even though it works in theory um in a refugium um you know can you use cato as your only nutrient export system yeah could would it be the best thing to do i don't think so because i think it's potentially problematic in terms of if you're limited to one nutrient export system if that system fails guess what i believe in redundancies that's the best thing about a reef tank protein skimming and all that stuff so could you do that I, I suppose. Would you want to? Probably not. Yeah. You, you, your thoughts on that? Um, yeah. You know, I think um, I've never really been too wrapped up in terms of my sand beds, you know, I, and, and I've only kept shallow, yeah. like one or two inch sand beds. Maybe, maybe it's closer to like one inch sand beds. And I've had a, uh, a natural yeah. cleanup crew that has, kind of like been doing the uh, the work for me in terms of maintaining that sand bed. I've never, right. I've never siphoned the sand beds. I think I always worry about um, deep sand beds or plenums in terms of, you know, how do, how do you maintain those? I guess you leave them alone, but over time, would that uh, become a risk to the tank? Would things within the plenum or the deep sand bed, you know, become toxic if you stir them up somehow? I don't know. That, that, I've never ventured into that area. 
Right. I, you know, the longest I ever maintained an aquarium with a deep sand bed, and I mean like deeper than like four or five inches, I think I had a tank set up for about six and a half years and I had no problems. The only reason I broke it down is because I was moving. But in terms of the sand bed, yeah, I mean, you're, if you're not, it, again, it goes back to disturbing systems. You know, when mud or whatever we're talking about, when, you know, these, these things need to be left alone because they're, they're working. And when we start siphoning or getting down there, we could damage the very, you know, processes that we're trying to foster. So yeah, if you're going to go, but don't disturb it. I, I agree. I mean, I remember back in the day, they used to put like screen in the lower level right. of the bed. Not a bad idea, but I, I don't think you need to go that radical. And I don't personally don't think you have to have a deep sand bed to get denitrification. I think it's been proven that with the right yeah. diameter sand and people way smarter than me could talk about it. But I think you can go as low as like a half an inch and still get denitrification. It happens in the very top layers. So, you know, I, I, it's relative. Do you want a deep sand bed because you like the biodiversity or you're thinking it's strictly nutrient export? I would rather do just better nutrient export with water exchanges. I think macroalgae refugiums or macroalgae reactors are great. I love those. I, I'm so glad that that's become a thing now. Yeah, macroalgae is really I cool. I use the uh, the Pax Bellum Arid um, algae reactor, and, and it's mm -hmm. and it's great. Do, those are do great. you think that um, it's necessary to dose uh, nitrates and uh, and or iron when you're using one of those um, algae reactors, or even a refugium? Do you think it's important with macros to dose? Well, you know, I think it, it gets back to if if there's a deficiency of iron or nitrate, then you may have to, or you may have to thin out, you know, harvest more of that macroalgae. So it's not killing itself by growing so fast. I suppose one could say if you're dosing this and it's being assimilated by the algae, it's working harder, pulling out other less desirable nutrients. So it, it can go either way. I don't really have a, a, a definitive answer for that. I think it's situation specific. I personally, again, I'm not a big fan of dosing a lot of things. Right. Other than say, like, like I said, things that are more food related or like the aminos, I think that's interesting. Of course, you know, that's sort of, you don't know every single amino that you're dosing. You just know what you're dosing something. So there's a certain leap of faith you take when you put stuff in your tank, if you're not testing specifically for it, but it doesn't mean it's bad. It's just maybe not the way I'd go. And dosing nitrate to me seems counterintuitive, but, uh, you know, there's probably a logic to it when you're trying to grow, you know, uh, macroalgae. Right. Um, circling back to a deep sand bed or plenums and, and what have you, any concern about um, old tank syndrome with a sand bed? Oof. I, it's funny. I just wrote an article about that <laughs> in the freshwater. I, what exactly constitutes old tank yeah, syndrome, in know. my opinion? Yeah. People say, oh, I, I've read, I, when I was researching the blog that I wrote, I was reading like, okay, what is old tank syndrome? People say it's, oh, when nitrate starts rising, ammonia, it becomes detectable. Why does that happen? It's not like your tank reaches a certain age and then it just says, oh, it can't go any further. The bacteria go on strike and that's it. It's because you've neglected to do something. It's, it's, it's care. I hate to sound like a jerk about it, but it's, if we have to be consistent. Again, I quote Greg, that stability promotes success. Do the same thing over and over and over again. You shouldn't have a problem if it takes 13 years old or if it's five years. That guy, uh, uh, on recent, remember Bomber, I think yeah. that's his name. Yeah. Yeah. Guy, Bomber. He, yeah. Bomber, the guy in Brooklyn, he has a tank that's been like 30 something yeah, years old. Yeah, do that? <laughs> because he, he, yeah, a lot of patience, but I don't know how the tank physically is holding together. But, but the, the point is you can maintain an aquarium indefinitely. 
if you approach it like it's a living, breathing ecosystem, like a garden. I mean, I know at some point in a garden, you have to turn it over and get new soil in there, but it's the same with a, a, a reef system. As long as you're replenishing nutrient that the animals need to survive, there's no reason why you can't keep it going indefinitely. I just don't believe in the essence thing where it suddenly deteriorates beyond you know, the ability to recover. I, I, I just don't buy that. I really don't. There's, nature always has an answer. You know, rivers and oceans have been around for billions of years. They don't just stop unless there's an outside influence. So, yeah. Uh, Robert Poorman, thank you so much, man, for the uh, for that super chat. The comment is Reef Bum Rocks, but it's really uh, it's all about the guests on this show that uh, make this show <laughs> rock. So uh, I want to I want to thank Scott and and everybody for um, making this an awesome dialogue. Just thank you. And and Greg, yeah, please everybody, uh, thumbs up on the stream there if you're digging what you're uh, watching and listening to right here. Uh Gee, Scott. So I don't want to like uh, keep you uh, too much longer. What? Um, That's a pleasure. Yeah. Listen, I um, I just want to thank you for for taking the time out. I know you're uh, you're a very busy busy guy. <laughs> um, just seeing a comment right here that we got to get uh, everybody to see here. Who made the Greg, cross toxins? Mars equals ass reefer syndrome. Oh, okay, that's what that. <laughs> yeah. Yep. Um. Let me ask you. Let me let me circle back to um, unique corals and 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 folks. If you have any sure. other um, questions, throw them in the chat. But um, and, and this is probably a question that you've already touched on. But at unique corals, you know, obviously, you, you and you mentioned you guys did some really cool things and and um, you know, create a very um, uh, interesting business model that is still a, a, an awesome still doing great awesome things yeah they're doing it. joe's doing fantastic yeah if you had to uh say you know give three things for the keys to success at unique corals that can translate to a reef keeper today what would you say those three things would be that could translate to a hobbyist i think it would be learn uh be humble enough to learn from you know i don't say mistakes but to, to learn be open-minded to new ideas. Um, uh, feed, feed your corals because food is so important. Um, don't be obsessed with hyper cleanliness and embrace circulation, embrace gyre flow or other types of flow. Those are three really important. I think that's four actually, but those are some really important things. Flow, food, uh, uh, don't be over ridiculously clean and be humble. I think those are important. And I think just I would probably tell you the same thing today. And I think Vic that worldwide or any of those guys would say the same thing. There's always something to learn. No one is ever knows everything. Um, I mean, you, you, the thing I always love about like going to Magnus is you'll meet somebody, you'll, you'll have an idea in your head of doing something. And you know, at the bar, you'll meet somebody that they were doing that two years ago. Yeah. It was, somebody's always doing something that you're thinking of this hobby and ideas in it. And we can't get too rigid in our thinking. And that's the beauty is there's always somebody trying something and don't, you know, don't necessarily attack somebody because they're trying something new and seemingly unorthodox or against the grain. I think it's important to be, I don't want to say rebellious for the sake of rebellious, but it's important to, to be open-minded to new ideas. And I'm glad that the reef hobby does that. I'm very proud of the reef community because they are embracing new ideas. Yeah, no, it's really it's really important to um, to be uh, to be open to to um, to new ideas. You know, just in talking to a whole bunch of different people on this show, I've learned a lot. You know, I've been in reef keeping for twenty five plus years. Maybe it's going close to thirty yeah. years or something like that. But 
you know, an OG reefer. Yeah. 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 So, yeah, I, I definitely have learned a lot from talking to folks like you and, and others, and there's no cookie cutter way to run a reef tank. There are so many different ways you can have success and that's really cool. Yeah, and the, and the technology is just, I think the other thing too is the technology helps us. It, it shouldn't be a hindrance. It shouldn't be something we feel obligated to do. We should use the technology that we're comfortable with, but we shouldn't be afraid to look at technology as a means to make things more successful, but to overcomplicate things is also a problem. So there's a balance. Seeking a balance is important too. Yeah, I, uh, I, I, I definitely embrace technology, but getting back to the, you know, I'm, I'm the controller um, quote, I like that. I, um, I think he's selling T-shirts too, but the uh, with that quote. <laughs> so, <laughs> I can I, seriously, yeah, I <laughs> check it out. And, well, he's the ultimate gadgeteer, yeah. but but he's a hundred percent right. He's an old one of the best. I, I use the word waterman. That's like a surfing term, but it's one of the best watermen I know. Freshwater, saltwater, incredible because he does it all, and and all the best aquarists I know are like that. They 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 do a little of everything, and and. They're not locked into one particular thing. They're well versed in a variety of, you know, things, um, and that's cool. Yeah, and and you know, the point I was I was going to make is that um, I almost want to call my controller a monitor because I don't do a lot of controlling with it. I do some, but I yeah. think that it's important just to be able to see if there's a red flag that you need to take Agreed. care of. And and uh, I also like the fact that when I'm away on vacation, that I can really kind of stay in touch with anything that might be an issue well yeah the, the, the two functions that i think are the best with a controller are light pulling the lights obviously that's a given and auto top off that's a one gadget that i do well-planned auto top off with with a definite cutoff so you don't you know fill your sump overflowed or whatever but i think auto top off is a great piece of technology for just about anybody to have it just again it, it promotes consistency and stability so that's one technology piece that we should all probably embrace. And there's lots of, you can get a standalone top off system and, you know, enjoy that yeah. too. Yep. For sure. Oh, yeah. All right, Scott, man, I think we're going to, uh, we're going to wrap it up. Any, uh, any final thoughts uh, today? No, it's just, it's just, I, again, what a pleasure to, uh, to talk uh, reef ideas and, and uh, it's kind of fun because uh, to me, there's, we're all aquarium people, no matter what we're keeping, freshwater, saltwater. I mean, take that mentality on both sides of the fence and we shouldn't be afraid to cross over. I'm constantly telling freshwater people to come to the reef world and vice versa because we all learn from each other. And these kinds of programs are great because a lot of discussion and interaction, I think that's super important. And I, I just thank you for having me as a guest. I appreciate your leap of faith into a guy that sort of left the coral world at the top of his game and is now playing in this weird freshwater thing. So it's kind of fun to... Uh, to, to talk no, to you this was a, I, again, I really appreciate you taking the time, Scott. It was a great discussion. I, I learned a lot and I think there were a lot of parallels between the two. And, and I think definitely folks can benefit by uh, checking one out versus the other, you know, for sure. Absolutely. So anyway, that'll, uh, that'll do it for this uh, live stream again. Thanks to, uh, to Scott for being a guest. I also want to thank Marine Depot again for being a sponsor for, and for uh, supporting the, uh, the show. My next live stream is going to be next Thursday, April 22nd. And, oh, guess who's going to be on it? It's going to be Greg Carroll. <laughs> Greg's <laughs> going to be on the show again. So uh, I think he might be my first repeat guest. Nice. I, had, I had Greg on last uh, June. So the show is, uh, yeah, we're coming full, full circle here having, having Greg on. Well, I'm sure. You're going to enjoy that one. Yeah, I'm sure we're, we're going to be talking about Greg's, uh, Greg's new uh, tank and the progress he's been making there, the incredible progress he's been making there. And hopefully he'll share some video 
for us. I'm giving you a little homework assignment there. Um, Talk about a guy that's the real deal reefer. Yeah, Greg is a Greg prototype. Is. He's a legend here in Southern California. He's a real deal reefer. You're going to really enjoy yep. and, it. Really and enjoy we're him. also going to be talking about Reefer Palooza in, uh, in Florida, that upcoming yeah. show. And I also want to remind you folks, I do have another um, live coral show coming up on Saturday, April 24th at 3 p.m. So we'll have 20% uh, off on all of my frags, but um, more, more about that in the uh, coming, up, coming up next week. So until then, be safe, be well, and uh, have a good night. Adios. Thanks a lot.